I'm your host, Dr. Jeff Brown, with your Merge Medical Podcast with my co-host, Dr. Jeff Cole. I'm very excited about the group that we've got uh, to interview today. This is the executive team from Dysgenics. This is a clinical stage biopharma company developing an allergenic injectable disc cell therapy for lumbar degenerative disc disease. Uh, we're joined by Dr. Kevin Foley, inventor of multiple patents that have revolutionized interventional spine care, including my own spine. Thank you, Dr. Foley. His devices are used globally to improve patients' lives. He's currently the chairman of the board at Sims Murphy's Clinic in Memphis, where he practices neurosurgery. We're also joined by Flag Flanagan. Flag is the CEO uh, with over 30 years of experience in the medical device field. We're also joined by Bob Winilak, very skilled medical device and biological uh, biologics executive with over 30 years in the orthopedic uh, spine market. Uh, with that, I'm going to turn it over to Flag to give us a brief overview of their pitch deck, and then we're going to go through with some pointed questions. Jeff, thank you so much uh, for having us on today. Uh, we we really are excited about where we are. Uh, as as uh, you know, Dysgenics is a clinical stage biopharma company developing allogeneic uh, injectable disc cell therapy for lumbar degenerative disc disease in the mild to moderate area. We we really we believe we have a target population in this country of 2.5 million people annually that we can treat with an injection in a treatment room of this cell therapy. The cell therapy has demonstrated a regenerative capacity and potential to treat underlying pathophysiology of DDD, both disc architecture and inflammation. We did we were granted an RMAT regenerative medicine advanced therapy designation recently based on this one-two data, which Dr. Foley will discuss, and a fast track designation in 2019 based on the preclinical animal studies we did using human cells. We have a scalable built-for-purpose allogeneic manufacturing facility based in Salt Lake City, Utah. We have 33 issued patents, uh, 26 pending with many, many trade secret protections around our manufacturing and our know-how. We have de-risked the clinical, the clinical pathway so far, and uh, we're looking forward to uh, pivotal phase three trial expected to target pain and disability. Um, this is our leadership, and uh, three of us are on today. Dr. Najib Thomas uh, is a, is a well-recognized uh, spine neurosurgeon uh, based down in New Orleans, Louisiana, at Southern Brain, Brain and Spine. He also co-founded Crescent City uh, Surgery Center and uh, Surgical Hospital, uh, where uh, he currently serves as medical director. Colin Novick uh, is an a interesting fella. He comes from Japan uh, since he was a year old. He's natively fluent in Japanese. We worked with him, a, him as a consultant, and he was Dr. Sharona, who led our Series C uh, round of funding. Uh, he was Dr. Sharona's choice uh, to be the uh, board director uh, after the Series C round of funding. You can see that, uh, Jeff, we've had a very good uh, history in terms of, of, of basically building our value and hitting our milestones uh, when we, from the time we were founded in 2008 through translational science preclinical studies. And then you can see the rounds of funding along the way with the USIND investigational new drug allowance. Uh, by the FDA, June of 2019, followed by a CTN, which is similar uh, drug allowance by Japan, with this fast track designation 
And then the last patient enrolled in the U.S. study with another round of funding to build out the manufacturing facility with the last patient being enrolled in Japan uh, in April of 2021, where we then uh, received positive U.S. interim data and then at 52 weeks and then at 78 weeks and then the full two-year data with the FDA granting us this RMAT designation. In the U.S., uh, we worked through the FDA, the biologic branch, following a biologic license application pathway. And these are for various biologic drugs similar to Humira, Trimphia, and other biologics. In Japan, we are following the pathway for regenerative medical products. And uh, we really are hopeful there uh, at the possibility of a conditional marketing approval, possibly uh, by the end of this year. We are seeking to raise a total of 95 to 125 million in our Series D round of funding. We've raised 71 million to date. We're raising 40 to 50 million currently in a convertible note to that Series D. We have $30 million of existing demand from the insiders on the convertible note now. So we're trying to fill out the rest of that. Uh, we have a recent big four uh, accounting firm valuation uh, that is uh, very, very good. It's it's uh, in into the low billions of dollar valuation today. So we're very excited about where we are there. And we believe that we can be a potential blockbuster drug by year three of commercialization. That would be with revenue in excess of a billion dollars. I'd love to run through really the just the the main topics and uh, Jeff Brown and I will kind of tag team back and forth, try to keep us uh, on task. And, and again, we can, we can edit this down. So um, uh, let's get going. What, what, um, who would like to tackle just the, the main um, discussion of the problem itself, low back pain and, and how much of a, of an issue that is in the United States and abroad. So, so I, I can speak to that, Jeff. Um, Chronic low back pain is an incredibly common problem. Um, you know, uh, uh, there's a there's a uh, an incidence lifetime of of over eighty percent. Uh, uh, back pain is the uh, uh, second most common reason patients visit a physician. Uh, it's the the primary cause of lost work days. And although there are a variety of causes for back pain, degenerative disc disease turn, terms, turns out to be the most common cause. We spend as a society over $100 billion a year in the U.S. treating this entity, and, and we don't do a very good job of it. We do not have a treatment for degenerative disc disease or DDD that addresses the basic underlying pathology and leads to any biologic repair of those discs. And can you talk about what type of, I know you said this is a very big problem, but if one of you could answer what you feel like the total market size would be like, what's your total addressable market, both U.S., domestically and worldwide? Sure. I, Kevin, if, if, let me, I, I can take this one. It, it, so there's been a great patient, a uh, great paper published in 2017 by Ravendra et al., where they looked at the incidence of lumbar back pain. It affects a quarter billion patients around the world. Uh, 
uh, in 16 million patients in North America are affected annually by an incidence of low back pain. And we've done a lot of uh, a, a lot of metadata around the, the Revendra paper and other papers. And, and we've really distilled down sort of that modified Furman three to seven that Kevin mentioned to these various patients where we had a modified Furman four was the average uh, patient in our study. And, and we've identified 2.5 million patients annually that conceivably we could serve with an injection in a treatment room utilizing a C-arm of IDCT. Uh, it, 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 and, and if you look at that patient population, Jeff, to give you some idea of the proportion, last year, 2.1 million patients were uh, diagnosed with cancer in this country. So it's it's a it's an you know a, a very large population in which we believe we can serve, and uh, and and you know we really do believe there is is this evidence that we are regenerating the disc from the inside out, while seeing these dramatic reductions in pain, improvement in ODI, and increase in quality of life. That's substantiated by the disc volume increases we saw. That's fantastic. Dr. Foley, what, what can you say about the current standard of care and uh, where where you feel that uh, this company is going to disrupt and uh, maybe put some other modalities um, in the sideline? Sure. Uh, patients who present acutely will always have uh, an, a non interventional non-operative approach first, right? So we're, we'll continue to use exercise programs and therapy and manipulation and uh, various medications, Jeff, for patients who present with uh, acute simple low back pain. It's, it's, it's when the problem persists and uh, doesn't respond to the, the typical non-operative interventions that, that, that we need something better. And for those patients right now, their, their options are limited. Um, they, they can have a fusion, uh, which as you know, basically involves getting rid of the disc, replacing it with bone, placing some kind of hardware in the spine uh, to, to help that fusion heal. Um, and then we can never undo that fusion. So for patients with degenerative disc disease, for example, I personally don't like to do fusions uh, because I'm taking away the function of their disc and putting stress on the adjacent level, right? That we know over time that a certain number of those patients are going to have issues at the levels next door because of because of that intervention. And that's not to say that that all fusion is bad. It isn't. When you have true instability of your spine, uh, you know, when the, the, the bones are moving vis-a-vis uh, -vis each other, fusion is the right thing to do. So I'm not saying fusion will go away. Fusion, fusion will stay with us. I just think that the fusions that are done for disc degeneration alone are 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 going to diminish in number with 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 a treatment that can directly affect the underlying biologic problem with those discs. Another alternative is is to place an, an artificial disc in that disc uh, 
typically uh, two two metal pieces with some polymer that 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 can can move upon each other. Um, those have been around now for a couple of decades, and clinically in the in in the neck in the cervical spine, disc disc replacement has proven to be useful. In the low back, it's just not proven to be very popular um, amongst surgeons because the outcomes haven't been as good. Probably because you know a, a, a real disc isn't isn't two pieces of metal with some polymer in between. It's 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 a complex biological structure. So I, I believe that this intervention will will displace some of the the more aggressive surgeries that are done now. Uh, to to treat the patients who haven't responded to to non-operative measures, I also think because of the durability we're seeing with this treatment, again at least two year responses to a single shot, if if not longer, I think this is going to turn out to be really really cost effective for the whole system. Not only a good thing for patients, but a good thing for the healthcare system. Excellent. Well, a lot of the viewers will know that I practiced interventional pain for a number of years, and it can be at times frustrating with what you have available to take care of patients because everything we have has side effects. You've, you're limited, as not, as not being a surgeon, I'm saying, you're limited to NSAIDs, Tylenol, opioids, which come with a whole host of problems that we're all very much aware of. But there's really nothing like this. Even, even spinal cord stimulators aren't as effective for axial back pain as we would like. Um, having said that, speak to your solution and particularly uh, patents and where you are in terms of FDA clearance and the science of what Dysgenics is bringing to the market. So I'll go ahead and touch on that. So patents, um, multiple patent family, 26 issued. We have around 30 in play and, and multiple families. And Flag touched on this earlier here, but you know our initial product is for the lumbar indication, but our IP covers the approach as well as the methods and then the derivatives of use for this here. And we talked earlier about how you know scalable and how these cells can be differentiated into different therapeutic outputs in here. And then we further you know expanded our IP to cover the process improvements for the commercial scale that Flag touched on earlier in there. So we built up this tremendous, um, you know, IP portfolio. And then even if we handed someone a patent with, with all the trade secrets to make something like this as a, a GMP compliant product, you couldn't do it. There, there's so much technology and R&D that went into being able to produce this as a drug product with these types of therapeutic outputs, you know, took us years to do. So we're very proud of where we are um, with that. But once again, the, the novelty of the approach is really being able to produce a tissue-specific progenitor shell from disc tissue that gives it the unique properties to be able to go into the center of disc, put out extracellular matrix, and literally rebuild the disc from the inside out at the same time, you know, giving out immunomodulatory signals to treat the short-term pain and inflammation going on, really gives the special properties to these cells. It, it, it's very unique, uh, Jeff, from any other product that's out there in terms of the cell itself. Uh, we do have IP, existing IP out to 
2042. So we, we're in a good way. Uh, obviously, we've done, you know, almost 13 years worth of basic science, pre-clinical work uh, with 13 to 14 different animal studies along the way, which everybody else is going to have to do to follow on. Then they're going to have to do the clinical work in a phase one, phase two, and then a phase three, um, we, which, which again can be another seven to 10 year pathway. We've seemed to uh, advance it a little bit more here from an accelerated standpoint, we hope. So we feel like we've got a very good head start. The, the other competitor in the marketplace now for a low back pain cell therapy product is Mesoblast. Uh, they use a, a selected mesenchymal stem cell that they use around other parts of the body uh, where they've done some clinical trials around cardiovascular studies and graft versus host disease. They do not have an approval yet. And uh, they, they did fail their first phase three trial in their low back pain study. They're going back for another one. Uh, so we feel like we're in a very, very good position, uh, especially around the fast track and the RMAT to move forward. And uh, with the data that we've shown so far in this, uh, and, and one thing, you know, Mesoblast did not show uh, uh, an advantage over the normal saline product. And it did not show any radiographic improvement like we did with this volume improvement. So we feel like we're in a very good position. And, uh, you know, again, it, it, we're building a lot of moat along the way, which is, uh, you, you know, happens when you, you know, build out a biologic uh, and take it down this very, very rigorous regulatory pathway. So we feel we're, we're in a very good position to, to, to literally help millions of patients around the world. That's fantastic. fantastic. You, you've answered what was going to be my next question about competitors, but it yeah. certainly does sound uh, like you're in an open lane. Um, we are. We, we, we've got some open field running. And, uh, you know, we're white hot focused on, on this particular uh, treatment uh, and this particular patient population. And then we think we can grow it from there. And, and we really like to use Edwards Life Science as one of our models. You know, they got into the uh, cardiovascular surgery and thoracic surgeon space, and they develop products over time, and they brought in uh, the cardiovascular interventionalists and uh, was able to, to, to kind of coalesce, you know, that whole group, very similar to neurospine, orthopedic spine, and interventional pain, where, you know, they became, you know, one of the most successful uh, companies in the world from both uh, the ability to help cardiovascular uh, therapies and uh, cardiovascular disease states dramatically, uh, along with being uh, one of the better investments in the life science space over time. So we, we feel like we're in a similar position and, and really can do that. We, we've just got to get through with the IDCT first and uh, then, then continue to grow our business to, to, to really help a lot of people. And, and you know, that's been... Uh, Kevin's, Bob's, and my my mission uh, from the very beginning. And it really is about if you take care of the patient and if you're doing the right thing by the patient, everything else tends to take care of itself. And uh, we've seen that in, 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 in various things along our careers. As you know, Kevin, uh, you know, he's considered by many the father of minimally invasive spine fusion. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, one of the things I've referred to with Kevin along the way was was what we call not FDA rigor, but Foley rigor. 
where he was adamant in the very beginning that we use human cells in the animals. You know, originally uh, with Dr. Kukakoff, he had used uh, animal to, to animal, you know, uh, the same. And and Kevin was, once we saw in, in Kukakoff's concept of selecting, enriching, and expanding these cells from human disc tissue, he said, look, if, if this is really going to work and truly be uh, allogeneic, uh, and, and immunoprivileged, then those cells should be show immunoprivilege in the animals, which they did. So, you know, there, there were some, you know, Kevin, Kevin's really been amazing in terms of his, his intellect uh, and his knowledge and expertise in, as the chief medical officer of this company to, to drive this product from a scientific standpoint and a clinical standpoint. And, you know, Bob's done a phenomenal job as he had at Osteotech with the execution and, and the execution risk along the way. And, uh, you know, I, I'm just very, very proud and honored to be associated with it, to continue to maintain the discipline so that we're white hot focused to get this first product to market. I find it fascinating that these human cells do not provoke an immune response in animals. Well, it, it goes to the, to the, to, to the true immunological low modulatory markers of the cells and, and Kevin I'll let you expound on that from a from from what you saw in in you know this whole xenographic yeah. notion yeah so you know Jeff as part of that uh, the output of our of our culture process the those those cell surface markers that are you know friend or foe right <laughs> when mm. when a cell comes into a in, into a living creature they're downregulated, mm -hmm. and so the, the 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 cells are just treated as friend. Mm. How about business model and go to market strategy? It's it's, it's exciting that uh, that you're coming out of the lab, and we can, we can yeah. talk about the next steps. I'd love to hear. Yeah, so so the next step is is this pivotal phase three trial that we'll do. And, and this is a much larger patient population. We're going to look at both single and multi-level uh, opportunities to serve patients. Uh, and we anticipate, anticipate from a commercial standpoint that we will uh, set up a, a pharmaceutical drug model with a direct sales force. And we will also do a lot of direct uh, to patient marketing around, you know, and, and educating the patient with lumbar disc disease about our product and how it might work. And then we we originally or, or initially want to start out uh, utilizing centers that, that really are integrated spine centers that handle the whole episode of care. And uh, we, we think that's the, one of the ways that uh, we can start this out right. So there's a very good discipline about patient selection in this modified Furman three to seven and uh, move this forward and expand it into other aspects of, of the spine, possibly around cervical, possibly around adjacent level disease, uh, where, where a patient has been fused and he's five to 10 to 11, 12 years later. And I say he, my wife, uh, was uh, had a two level cervical fusion and then 13 years later had another fusion because she had adjacent level disease. So we think we can expand uh, you know, up and down the spine for, for various uh, uh, episodes where we can interdict along the way. 
in the spine, but we also believe that we can expand with another cell around the musculoskeletal system and then possibly other cells in the future. That's awesome. We want to ensure that we're having good success, you know, with the sites and in, in, in the in the following the labeling there. Work very closely. We touched on payers earlier, working very closely with the payers to get into this treatment algorithm in there and then working with, you know, different uh, medical societies and patient advocacy groups that are looking at degenerative disc disease and lower back pain and really have a lot of grassroots marketing built in there combined with the pharma um, type advertising going on and really work to channel these patients into the treatment centers so the patients can get screened properly and, and you know, and, and injected and treated with the highest standards of care. Um, I hadn't thought about until uh, Flag, you brought it up, but adjacent segment failure is a huge problem after you, fa after you fused a patient. I think it's something like 10% uh, per year per segment fuse in, if you take all comers um, but being able to use this on the adjacent segments has there been any thought to prophylactically doing that Devin oh yeah, so it's a great thought Jeff you know we're we're going to have to study that right to know mm. but but does it make sense logically makes a lot of sense mm. because if you if you look at those adjacent segments one of the first things you see is you see those discs that were healthy start start to change, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's, and it's from the biomechanical load. And so why not intervene early? Mm -hmm. and, 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 and maybe we'll save those patients a future surgery. Yeah. I that's mean, profound. I mean, it, that's it, just it, profound. Yes. And it's close to home with, with my wife. I mean, right. and, and I mean, she, she, you know, she would have done anything uh, while she was in incredible hands for this adjacent level fusion, uh, right. you know, she, 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 you know, would have, you know, of course, uh, opted for IDCT at, at, in, in the cervic, cervical area. So, yeah. and, and, you know, this is the thing, and, and Kevin and I and Bob have talked about this numerous times about, you know, where Kevin says, you know, where I'm doing a multi-level fusion, could I could I possibly save that that adjacent level that's on the bubble to be fused or not to be fused? You know, could could we do that? Or one of the things Kevin's discussed in great detail is is there a possibility once he does a disectomy that that we could possibly, you know, get that annulus closed properly and then and mm -hmm. then check from the contralateral side to 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 basically restore mm -hmm. some 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 function to that disc after disectomy so i don't know kevin you might want to talk about that briefly too because that's another huge area of, of uh, patients that that you know have have some issues after disectomy yeah well so one of the things any spine surgeon will tell you guys is uh, patients will frequently ask well doc what are you gonna put back in there <laughs> and of course you'd say well nothing <laughs> they uh so Sure, it would it 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 would it would be nice to have something that that worked in 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 terms of uh, uh, potentially um, improving the 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 discs that have already herniated and and trying to prevent future problems at those levels. Yeah, and and quite frankly, to expound on this a little further, these would be supplemental VLAs. Once once we have, and we've shown such great safety. Uh, we believe the FDA would would be would be very open to these supplemental BLAs of adjacent level uh, injection 
uh, after or, or, or uh, during fusion, uh, possibly this whole notion of injection uh, after disectomy along the way. So, and, and, and we think through that supplemental BLA with the comfort that we've established around the safety and uh, hopefully the success of our pivotal phase three, we can really begin to move the ball forward and accelerate treatment to all these patients up and down the, the, their spine. The other part of it too is that this cell in the manufacturing process will be approved with the lumbar indication. So it's not like we have to go and come up with a different cell derivative or mm -hmm. different manufacturing. It's a different volume and the delivery technique, different needle the practitioners will use will be the differentiator. So, you know, we'll we'll get some light speed, you know, with this approval to work on some of those supplemental indications. Do you have some preliminary revenue forecasts? Uh, we do. Uh, after commercialization, we buy, we believe by year three, we'll be tracking uh, revenue uh, to a billion dollars to a blockbuster status. That's a blockbuster drug is known as a drug that does a billion dollars in revenue annually. We think that the uh, that by year three, we'll, we'll be ramping to that billion dollar revenue possibility. Uh, going forward, if we if we do see and and get the labeling that we believe the phase one two data suggest in the high dose patient, and um, flag, I, I I get the sensation when I'm I feel when I'm talking to you. Yes, sir. You're talking about your wife. Yeah, I I, I see the mission. I see it, it in your heart. Listen. Yeah, and and and, and go ahead. No, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I want to tell you the, the founders that we've seen successful are the ones that have that, that mission. Right. Well, and I, I want to, yeah. And, and, you know, look for me, it was different because I was in the surgical and, and for Kevin, of course, and, and, and Bob too. I mean, I mean, Bob and I, we, we refer to ourselves as former metalheads. You know, I, I had a surgical uh, specialty distribution business and we sold plate rods and screws and fusion biologics. And and I would walk out of these surgeries with a with a fifteen to twenty five thousand dollar PO around plates, rods, and screws. Really, with my emphasis around helping the surgeon with the surgical microscope, and we bundled kind of off the the surgical microscope used in in neurosurgery, of which you know was a key piece of Kevin in in developing this whole notion of minimally invasive. Uh, spine surgical techniques utilizing the operated microscope. And that's where Kevin and I, you know, sort of found each other in 1991. And, and, and I would walk out with this, with this order or, or, or Kevin or, or somebody would be using the surgical microscope to do a microdisectomy. But if the joint was unstable, he pushed the microscope out of the room, grab a scalpel before Kevin's techniques became available, make an eight inch incision and and mm -hmm. and and sort of commit this, you know, a, 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 a very controlled amount of barbarously by putting plates, rods, and screws in these patients. And I would walk out with in my inner dialogue with going, God, I'm grateful for the business, but there's got to be a better way. And mm -hmm. so my wife had this cervical fusion in uh, in 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 2000, uh, 2004. and you know we knew that adjacent level disease would happen over time. And, you know, so I found this technology, uh, Kevin had been aware of it before me, but this technology came to the forefront uh, through a call from Dr. John Robertson, who was the chairman at the University of Tennessee. 
And he said, yeah. take a look at this. This is amazing. And all kinds of light bulbs went off. And, you know, I was, I had been in the surgical device distribution business for a long time. I was a little bored and, and I really felt led that this could be a way that I could help millions of people. And of course, you know, I, I was a distributor for Osteotech where Bob had been the president. And I went back to Kevin and Bob and said, come on, guys, this could, could this really be the answer? Could this really be the grail of degenerative disc disease? And, and, and Kevin said, it could, but it's a long walk up a, up a pretty big hill. So we believed, we, we had enough faith in this. And I, I think, you know, I, I got involved because I certainly had known Kevin over the years and faith in him and in Flag's prowess. We said, let's, it's worth taking the risk and putting the time in and, and you know, partnering with our, our loyal investors and, and building up a team to go after this based upon what the prospect of what this was, particularly with us all having been in the, you know, the fusion, you know, the, the metal part of, you know, musculoskeletal for years and saying, hey, wouldn't this be great if we can, you know, really make this happen and treat patients in a far better way? So it was worth us, you know, committing the time to it and, and being involved. And it's a long pathway. It, it's it's those familiar with device, you know, at a, a 510K, you know, this this started really in earnest in 2007. So for a lot of us here, you know, it's, it's been a journey, but it's been one of passion and love for, for what we can do prospectively to patients like we've been talking about. Yeah. You know, and, I'll, and I'll say something else, uh, Jeff, Jeff and Jeff, you know, the, the, and the graphs don't quite bring this out, but the amount of change in these very symptomatic patients in the trial was impressive. And one of the things I set the flag, and when we were first looking at the two-year data, is my God, these patients are doing as well as someone who has a really well-done fusion and does really, really well. In other right. words, it's a darn shot, and you're seeing outcomes that are remarkable. Yeah. I mean, Jeff, if you notice that durability graph that shows the durability out to, yeah. to, to two years, you can see from a Oswestry disability, there are patients that are in the third and fourth quintile of disability that we're driving back. As you see over time, at the end of two years, we're back to the first quintile of disability, which is pretty much no disability at all. It's absolutely incredible. And, um, you know, it's it it again, yes, it it was a smaller patient population in terms of uh, how we, you know, the study, but it was, you know, it was still a randomized, you know, double blind placebo vehicle controlled mm -hmm. trial. And mm -hmm. the data, especially compared, while we couldn't compare between groups, we could compare within groups with MCID. And you can see we, we, we did extremely well in multiples of MCID relative to the other uh, three arms. So, you know, it's very encouraging data. We're very excited. Uh, the FDA was certainly excited in that they granted a regenerative medicine uh, advanced therapy designation to us. And, and they really are helping and, and they, they are very enthusiastic, but they will not hedge one iota on the rigor, which is, and that's up to us and we get it. And uh, we believe that we've uh, put together a, a very good uh, pivotal phase three plan for the FDA. And uh, 
we're looking forward to uh, continuing our discussions there. We've, we've uh, from our CMC, which is our chemistry, manufacturing, and controls, that's all of our quality around our, our uh, manufacturing technique and the scale-up ability uh, in our built-for-purpose facility. Uh, we've, we've got, you know, a great pathway that's already signed off by the FDA. So we feel very good about that. We just need to uh, make sure that we're applying the same rigor in the phase three clinical mm -hmm. trial moving forward. You know, talking with multiple founders of companies, I've learned that a red flag is when they continually talk about an exit or an exit strategy, right? Yeah. And when I talk to each of you about what you're trying to do, the overwhelming mission is to make lives better. Yep. Period. And not only is that just refreshing to hear from a clinical care or just a human perspective, that ultimately becomes the, the founders that drive the success. So it's very refreshing to hear. And I wanted to ask Bob touched on, you know, how are you going to get this to the market? We, we answered it in, in the, in the deep dive, but in a, in a succinct manner, what's the marketing strategy here, Bob? So we, we spent time putting together a commercialization plan. I, I think a lot of it ties right into our, our pivotal study strategy is that the, the heart of treating patients is partnering with the appropriate treatment centers out there. So that's the heart of it. So ones that are integrated spine practices that tie in the surgical plus the interventional where we can channel in patients where they're going to be appropriately screened and injected per what the labeling of the product will be. This will be tied into, you know, careful selection in each market area with pharma-based advertising where we're going to, you know, create awareness for the patients and be able to channel them into the treatment centers, working closely with the payers and all the different tiers of, of, of payment uh, across the market to, you know, get this therapy approved so we can treat you know, this vast universe of, of patients who are suffering from this. So that's the big part of it. Uh, Flag touched on this and Kevin too, the rigors of doing an appropriate pivotal trial. So, you know, we can confirm the safety, the efficacy for reduction in pain, disability. And, you know, a big thing with the FDA and us wanting to do this right is that prospect of restorative. We touched on that there, there aren't other things in this mild to moderate space that are restorative that can actually, you know, arrest the disease state progression going on. So, you know, we're, we're uh, optimistic that we'll be able to confirm that in this pivotal study. And we're certainly going to market that within our labeling to the fullest to the patient to, to deliver something special to them. And as a follow-up to that, Bob, uh, are you guys, is your team familiar with the American Society of Interventional Pain Physicians? We are. Kevin's, yes. Yes. So they hold a an annual meeting um, in January, typically in Las Vegas. I think they alternate with Orlando occasionally. That would be a definitely a, a place that we should bring this to once this is ready for commercialization. Fantastic. We'd love to. And we'd love to come next year. And, uh, you know, depending on Kevin's schedule, uh, you know, I'm, I'm always available. Bob's available. We could we could present there and we certainly have. Uh, some clinicians from our phase one, two child would be, who would be glad to present as well. So, um, you know, we would welcome that opportunity. I know there are factors out of your control, but uh, what's your best guess on uh, going to market? 
So we're very hopeful uh, in the U.S. that we can go to market within three years. Uh, it, we, we're going to have to do a, a, a very good job on our on our phase three trial to get through that. Uh, we are looking at uh, some uh, this this whole possibility of a conditional marketing approval in Japan. And we are looking at uh, other opportunities outside the U.S. where we could set up a patient registry uh, where uh the, the patient could get a dose uh, and, and as, as part of that registry. So uh, please stay tuned. We're, we're excited about our progress and where we are. Uh, we are progressing uh, in, a, in a very uh, careful and uh, very conservative state to do the right things, to, to meet that rigor, but also to try to get this to as many patients as possible uh, as quickly as we can, especially being buoyed by the fact that we've seen such great safety in both the U.S. and the Japan trot. We feel very comfortable uh, giving this to patients, and I, I certainly feel very comfortable in giving this to anybody in my family. Tell me about the, uh, the funding round you're in now, the capital needs, current valuation, uh, yeah. pre-money, post-money, and what, right. you said it's a convertible note, at what point does that convert, at what event, yeah. et cetera? So we're going to, we want to raise about 45 to $50 million in the convertible note. We've got about 30 committed. Uh, we're looking to, uh, and this note has a 20% discount. It has an 8% coupon. It all converts to preferred shares in the company. Uh with at the price that we uh, negotiate with the lead funder in the Series D, we do have a uh, value cap of six hundred and twenty million dollars on the uh, if the company were to be bought uh, within uh, the time frame of the convertible note raised to the time that we negotiate the final price with the leader in the Series D. Uh, you know, I think the the you never know about the possibilities of where that is at. We we do have many both uh, device and fusion uh, medical device companies following us and uh, big pharma, and we we have have very good relations with all of those folks, and and they're watching us very carefully. But by the mm -hmm. same token, uh, we're 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 basically in it to get this to millions of patients knowing full well uh, this is a tremendous standalone business uh, by itself that could be developed into an Edwards life science. Uh, we are looking at, at liquidity really around uh, doing an IPO, uh, then uh, with followed by maybe keeping it private. And uh, obviously M&A is, is in there. I never thought I'd sell my surgical uh device distribution business, but Atochu, uh, one of the five trading companies of Japan, came along and, and offered me a lot of money to uh, sell that business to them. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I felt like I could do better and I kind of, uh, I had this sort of intuition of another calling and lo and behold, uh, you know, three years later into my five-year earnout with Atochu, uh, John Robertson calls me on the phone and I reach out to Kevin and Bob and we, we start this business. And of course, Itochu, you know, gave us, gave me their good graces to follow this as I, as I finish my earnout. So it's, it's really interesting and, and fascinating and, and, and Providence has been alive and well. So 
we're going to continue to do exactly what we need to do by staying white hot focused on the execution of IDCT first uh, to get this to patients with having a good commercialization plan uh, ready to go. And then these other uh, projects around, uh, you know, our preclinical development in this next cell that produces more collagen and then other things as we move forward. And then filling out how we can serve the patient uh, up and down the spine from a degenerative disc disease standpoint. With that, I'll hand it over to Dr. Foley. Uh, this is a recent presentation he had made. I'll let Kevin uh, tell you a little bit about this and then go through the deck. Dr. Foley, take it away. Thank you. This is sure. a presentation I gave just a couple of weeks ago down in Paradise Island. There is a, uh, an annual regenerative medicine uh, summit that's held uh, there uh, called Healink. And uh, we, we were there to present our data and I'll, I'll, I'll summarize uh, today for, for the audience. Th these are my disclosures and I, I do serve as the chief medical officer for dysgenics. Symptomatic lumbar degenerative disc disease is a common, common problem. Um, affects millions of people, uh, not only in the US, but throughout the world. And it's estimated that just within the US, we spend over $100 billion annually uh, treating this entity. The current uh, treatments for patients with symptomatic DDD that uh, does not respond to uh, typical non-operative management are limited, and none of them result in repair or regeneration of the disc. And down at the bottom of the slide, I've got the classic Furman scale for the, for the grading of uh, of the the degree of disc degeneration, and and we're 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 targeting here uh, Furman's grade two through seven. So when you have a patient who presents with a predominant low back pain, classical mechanical low back pain, who has failed to respond to typical non-operative intervention, you know, exercise programs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Uh, activity alteration, chiropractic care, injections, et cetera, uh, the options are limited for those patients. Uh, they consider a lumbar fusion, but we know for back pain alone, patients who don't have predominant leg pain, fusions are not ideal. There are mechanical replacements for the lumbar disc. They've been around now for well over a decade, and they're they just haven't worked out that well. That's why they're not nearly as accepted in the lumbar spine as they, as they have been for the cervical spine. And so ideally in treating these patients, we'd get to the, the biologic basis of the disease and restore the, the, the disc structurally and functionally. So our discs are shock absorbers. In fact, they are hydraulic shock absorbers. The, the center of your disc, the shock absorbing portion, is called the nucleus pulposus, and it's almost 80% water. So much more uh, water content, for example, than, than cartilage. Cartilage is about 50% water. And this, this hydration is, is key to, to the function of that disc. Within your, your nucleus, in the center of that disc, there is a sparse population of cells called nucleus pulposus cells. And these cells make the, uh, the matrix, the extracellular matrix or ECM that, that makes up your nucleus. 
And one of the key components in that extracellular matrix is, is proteoglycan. The proteoglycans have negative charges and they pull in, they attract positively charged ions like, like sodium. And this is what sets up the osmotic gradient that lets your disc stay hydrated. The collagen tube that sits within the nucleus helps corral or enclose these proteoglycans, and it's also important to the disc maintaining its hydration. So as the disc loses its ability to make proteoglycans and to make collagen too, it loses its ability to hold on to, to water and it loses its hydraulics. So again, the, the, you have predominantly collagen one to, to give you, you your structure to the annulus, the outer stiff container on the disc that holds the nucleus in. And then the collagen two, as I mentioned, functions to help the, uh, the nucleus maintain its hydration. So within this nucleus, within your nucleus pulposus in the center of your disc, there's, there's an active metabolic process going on. And so your nucleus pulposus cells are constantly making elements of the extracellular matrix or ECM. And then there are enzymes in your disc, such as MMPs or matrix metalloproteinases that are degrading the ECM. And there is a balance, a healthy balance between the production of the ECM molecules and the, and the destruction of those molecules, a homeostasis. In disc degeneration, that, that homeostatic balance becomes upset. And, and the destruction of your extracellular matrix starts to outpace your body's ability to make new ECM. And as that ECM degrades, your disc darkens on an MRI, it dehydrates, it loses height, it becomes stiffer, and it just becomes a less effective shock absorber and it becomes prone to damage from just normal daily activities. So in looking at targeting a disc biologically and looking at a biologic answer to this disease rather than placing an artificial device or, or, or bone in your disc and fusing it, one ideal target would be the architecture of that extracellular matrix. We've just discussed how that architecture is, is degraded in, in typical disc degeneration. And so restoring that architecture is, is a logical biologic target. The other phenomenon that happens as you, you get that homeostatic imbalance and, and you start to degrade that extracellular matrix, as, as those normal molecules fragment, the, the, the microfragments actually are, are foreign bodies within your disc and they, and they elicit an immune response and an inflammatory response. And so we know that a number of inflammatory cytokines are upregulated in disc degeneration. Tumor necrosis factor alpha or TNF alpha actually having the, the largest presence, but they're all the uh, uh, inflammatory cytokines I list here actually get upregulated when a disc degenerates. Here's a typical profile of, of cytokines in a normal disc, in the, in, in, or healthy disc in the light gray, and then a degenerated disc in the dark gray. And you can see how those inflammatory cytokines indeed are, are upregulated when a disc degenerates. So the, this, this, this immune response leads to inflammation and there's a reactive innervation of that disc. And so that, that innervation is pathologic. Those, those nerves are not supposed to be there. 
and they become inflamed too. And that's thought to underlie the, the genesis of the pain in a, in a degenerated disc versus what goes on in a healthy disc. So another logical biologic target beyond restoring the extracellular matrix is to directly attack that inflammation. And that's probably why, for example, Jeff and Jeff, that anti-inflammatories can have some impact in symptomatic DVD and, uh, and, and, and corticosteroids can have some impact, but, but we need something more potent. So one approach to attacking both of these biologic targets to restoring the extracellular matrix and mitigating the inflammation is to provide a new functional cell population in that disc. And with those functional cells, you can actually address both of those targets. You, you can provide a platform uh, to actually make new ECM. And then you can also produce paracrine signals that, that can modulate the, the inflammation. And this, in fact, is not a new notion. In fact, a number of different cell populations have been investigated for this potential. And so uh, for years, uh, investigators have tried to find a cell population that might achieve these goals that, that, that we just discussed. And I, I list them all here. And, and to date, uh, prior to the, the evolution of the cells we're going to talk about today, there just really hasn't been great success in this space, despite the use of a number of different cell types uh, in, in this quest. And it was based on the logical nature of this approach, but the lack of effectiveness of other cell populations that our group decided to uh, to explore the possibility of a of a new, a unique cell population for for this for this problem. And so these cells we term discogenic cells, and th these cells were first derived in the lab at the University of Tennessee and within the Department of, of Neurosurgery. They're an outgrowth of culture techniques that were used to derive uh, um, progenitor cells, stem-like cells from the adult human brain. And those techniques applied and modified for the disc allowed for the development of, of a new progenitor cell population that, that we term discogenic cells. So they're derived from adult human disc tissue we manipulate them in the lab um, uh, through a, a series of, uh, of culture sequ sequences that, that change the cells phenotypically, don't change the genotype as we'll get into. And then we can cryopreserve these cells and they're, and they're mixed so they can be stored long-term. And then they can be thawed at the treatment site mixed with a viscous carrier and injected into the, into the patient. So these cells are, are what is termed pluripotent. Um, they, they, they can produce other uh, target tissues depending on what we add to the, to, to, to the culture media. So uh, as, as, as we derive them, they naturally are driven to become mature nucleus pulposus cells. But we can take these same cells, we can drive them to bone, we, we can drive them to fat, or we can even drive them to cartilage. So we've spent years characterizing these cells, years in the animal lab. And so we know that 
as we put these cells through the culture system, we change them phenotypically. They, they change in shape. They, they change in, uh, in, in terms of their cell surface, surface markers. And, and some of those changes actually prove quite helpful for our use. For example, there's a significant down regulation of the HLA, DR, DP, DQ uh, cell surface markers. The, those are the cell surface markers, by the way, that underlie uh, organ transplant rejection. And so if you can down-regulate HLA, DR, DP, DQ, you, you can produce a cell that's, um, that's immune privileged. In other words, doesn't incite an immune response, even in a foreign host. And then in culture, uh, after we've derived these discogenic cells, they start to produce the constituents in culture of, of normal ECM. And so uh, they produce agrican and the other proteoglycans that are in uh, an adult disc. Um, they produce uh, collagen too, uh, necessary to, to corral that, uh, that uh, proteoglycan population. And they produce uh, some of the other constituents in, in the ECM, such as uh, what's called an actin cytoskeleton. Speaking about uh, the, the, the properties of these cells, uh, th there are ways to look at cells to see uh, whether they are inflammatory or uh, immunogenic uh, by uh, pitting them against uh, a, a foreign white cell population, typically uh, uh, lymphocytes. So um, in, 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 in this particular graph, when you pit uh, human uh, peripheral white cells, mononuclear cells, and and add discogenic cells to them, you you very much downregulate the, the the cells' response uh, to uh, to inflammatory stimuli. You can also mitigate how cells react to each other. This is a so-called two-way mixed lymphocyte reaction, and the the blue bars are what happens if you mix two unrelated white cell populations. They essentially attack each other and they, and they, uh, they multiply. And then you can see the mitigation of that reaction. If, if you put the two cell populations against each other in culture and then simply add the discogenic cells, significant improvement or mitigation of that response. So we know these cells are immunomodulatory and we know they're anti-inflammatory. It's also important when you're uh, developing a, a cell population for human use that you show that you're not going to, uh, to, to, to be forming tumors. And we, we all know that, that the cancer cells are essentially you know, immortal stem cells, right? And you don't want to inadvertently introduce a population that, of, of cells like that in, in, in humans. And so th there are ways to test the tumor former forming potential of various cell populations. We know in our cell population that not only are they karyotypically uh, normal uh, when we look at their chromosomes, but they, they don't form tumors in vitro and they don't form tumors in vivo. So one of the classic models looking for uh, tumor formation in a, in a living organi organism is the athymic mouse, mouse model. And you typically test your cells against a known uh, tumor-forming cell population. So the, the typical 
control population are the HALA cells, the Helen Lane cells that form uh, cervical cancer. So if you, if you place HALA cells subcutaneously in the athomic mouse, you get cancer everywhere uh, in diffuse fashion. When we place discogenic cells subcutaneously in athomic mice, not only do we not see any tumor formation, we actually see bits of disc form subcutaneously in the mice. And, you know, this is interesting. These are the human cells, by the way, in the, in the mice. So over the years, we've done numerous animal studies in, in numerous species, mice, rats, rabbits, pigs, even dogs. In all of these studies, we've used the human cells, knowing that uh, it's, it's, it's not only a, a way to test the, the cells in terms of their their, their ability to, to treat experimental DDD, to, to look at the histology, to, 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 look, to look at the chemistry, but also to test uh, whether or not there, there are going to be adverse events, and, and especially in immune response, because in, in the animals, of course, the human cells are xenograft. They're not, not allograft. They're worse than that. They're, 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 they're foreign. So in these studies, we are inducing an experimental uh, model that mimics disc degeneration. And the, the way to do that classically is to stab the disc with a needle. And if, if you take a, a rabbit, a New Zealand white rabbit, for example, and on day zero, um, simply puncture the disc, nothing more than that, then, then by two and four weeks, you can see the, the, the bar graph on, or the, the linear graph on the bottom, the, the discs diminish significantly in height, and then the, that, that height doesn't return. So the, the yellow line uh, doesn't show up as well on this. Uh, it's where the asterisks are is a cell population where we've injured the disc, but then at week two, added our cells. And our cells, instead of the disc continuing to diminish in, in volume, consistently in all the animal studies, the disc volume increases. And, and not only does the disc volume increase, but the histology improves. So if, if we puncture a healthy disc, not only, not only can we see the disc height diminish radiographically, we can, we can, we can see the, the height diminish histologically. And then at two weeks, if we take that injured disc and then inject ourselves, we can, we can watch that disc volume improve, as I just said, see it not only radiographically, but histologically, but we can also watch the cells improve morphologically. So the, on the, the, the magnified view and the, on, the, on the top left uh, next to the healthy disc is, is normal nucleus pulposus. The cells are plump. There's ample uh, extracellular matrix, ample cytoplasm within the cells, relatively plump nuclei. When you, when you stab the disc with a needle, not only does the disc diminish in volume, but the, uh, the ECM contracts, uh, condenses, and the nuclei shrink, they become pycnotic, as you can see. And then when we, when we inject ourselves two weeks after having stabbed the disc, we restore histologically uh, something that looks more like a normal disc histologically. We, we, we see the ECM increase. We see the disc, uh, the nucleus pulposus uh, nuclei plump up, their cytoplasm increase to, to a more normal state. And once again, just this slide is to emphasize that uh, 
through the culture system, we down-regulate the, the surface markers that are associated with activating an immune response in the recipient. And so we, we've seen in all of our animal studies, no signs at all of, of any rejection. So based on this abundance of uh, laboratory data, basic uh, in vitro data, and then the in vivo uh, multiple animal studies, we petitioned FDA to carry out a, a, a first in man trial. And that was the multi-center trial uh, that, that we recently uh, completed, involved uh, human subjects enrolled in 14 different centers across 12 different states. And uh, subjects were screened, uh, of course, for inclusion and exclusion criteria. And if they met uh, those criteria, then they were they were uh, allowed into the study, and basically these were subjects between 18 and 75 years of age, who had a diagnosis of early to moderate uh, DDD, modified Furman grade three to seven on an MRI. As we talked about Furman grades a little earlier in this talk, they had to have had chronic low back pain for at least six months prior to their screening visit. Most of them had had it for much longer. They had to have been unresponsive to at least three months of non-operative management. Again, most had had much more than three months of non-operative management. And they had to have a certain amount of low back pain on their visual analog scale at screening and a certain amount of disability on their Oswestry Disability Index. And the exclusion criteria were really geared towards trying to exclude patients who had other causes of their low back pain rather than uh, degenerative disc disease alone, and they couldn't, for example, have a symptomatic radiculopathy due to, due to nerve root compression. So these were patients who had chronic axial low back pain, um, recalcitrant to a trial of non-operative management that, as best we could tell, uh, were, were symptomatic from their DDD. And the tiebreaker in patients who had more than one level of uh, degeneration on their MRI was discography. So if the subjects met the entry criteria, they all got a single one cc injection, uh, and they were they were randomized to one of four treatment groups. They either got a cc of carrier mixed with three million cells, or they got a CC of carrier mixed with 9 million cells, or they got a CC of the carrier alone, which was sodium hyaluronate, or they got a CC of saline. And we based the cell dosing. So this was a dose escalation study too. We based the dosing on what we had seen in the animal discs, and we, and we simply scaled for human disc volume. So we, we knew the cell dosing that was working in the animals and sim simply up that dose based on animal disc volume versus typical human disc volume. So the subjects were blinded to treatment and they were assessed by blinded clinicians. We, we excluded the injectors from being the, uh, the assessing clinicians because we knew that even though the injectors weren't told what they were injecting, there's a difference in the viscosity of putting in a CC of saline I'm, I'm, I'm sure, Jeff Brown, you know this well, mm, yeah. versus putting in a cc of sodium hyaluronate, you'd be able to tell, sure. right? And so we didn't want any bias on the part of the uh, the assessing clinician. So the assessing clinician had to be someone who, who didn't do the injection. Uh, and so the, 
the patients were uh, you know, called, a, it was a typical outpatient injection, quick injection and out they went, done under local. And the sedation protocol is to whatever the, the, the center used for its, its typical protocol. And uh, then the patients were followed at 4, 12, 26, 52, 78, and 104 weeks. And they, they got clinical exam, they had their patient reported outcome measures gathered, and then they had imaging, plain, plain films and follow-up MRI. So MRI and plain films at study entry, and then, and then follow-up clinical and, and radiographic studies. So 60 subjects were enrolled in, uh, in 14 centers across 12 states, and there were uh, 20 high-dose patients, 20 low-dose cell patients, 10 uh, saline alone, 10 uh, uh, vehicle alone. Most common Furman score was four. Most, most commonly observed target disc was L5-S1, although you see there were a smattering in, at the other levels. And in negotiation with FDA at the start of the trial, we had set, you have to set an efficacy endpoint. So the efficacy endpoint was set to be uh, at 52 weeks, a statistically significant reduction in pain from baseline to week 52, greater than 30% as measured on a 100 millimeter vast scale. And in fact, uh, that was, was only met at all time points in the high dose cells and actually the pain relief in the high-dose group was, was over 60%. There was some improvement uh, in, in uh, the saline group. Saline does have an effect, as other studies have shown, but it only demonstrated statistical significance greater than a 30% reduction at week, week 26. So here, here are the pain responses. And the black is saline, the, the blue is, is the high-dose patients. So with, with an injection of high-dose cells, uh, by the 12-week visit, there, there had been really a profound improvement in, in pain on 100-point VAS in, in, in those patients. And that was sustained out at all time points, still held true at, at two years. Um, you see that saline briefly at, at, at 26 weeks did, did reach statistical significance. But, but by two years, saline is trailing off. We did see some late response with both the low-dose cells and with the carrier, but nothing achieved the consistent results of the high-dose cells. Jeff, we did some uh, post-hoc analysis around these pain studies, I mean, the pain scores in the low-dose and the vehicle. And the low-dose does seem to work over the long term and the vehicle we noted that more vehicle patients were taking opioids to reduce their pain so it was very very interesting you know as we did some of this post hoc analysis to see the bear, you know the differences and and how well the the high dose did uh from a from 12 weeks all the way through yeah, yeah. the only the only group that had diminished opioid use was was the high dose the yeah. high dose group so yeah there, so there's some confounding of those results because of opioid use by some of the other groups. And it, what, what we found that was striking, though, were, were, were the functional results. So the, uh, you know, VAS, as you guys know, you're, you're asking the patient, they, 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 get, they get a 10 centimeter, 100 millimeter horizontal line, and you say, put an X where you're hurting. You know, it's, you know, if you woke up on the wrong side of the bed that day, if you had an argument with your significant other, you know, who knows where that X grows. You know, the functional uh, studies 
much more in depth. So Oswestry Disability, it, it's a 10 question uh, test and with multiple choice answers for, for each of those 10 questions. So a little bit more thought goes into that. And, and, and it, it, it's interesting to look at how much change there was in the, uh, the, the disability, improvement in disability in the high dose patients as compared to the, to the other gro groups. So we, did, we saw some improvement in all groups, just not the profound improvement that we saw in the, in the high dose group. And, and the, this notion of an MCID, so an MCID means a, a minimum clinically important difference. So in Oswestry, if you have an Oswestry in, in the high 40s, low 50s, you're disabled. And if, if you're a normally function human being, you're going to have an Oswestry somewhere between 15 and 20. Hardly anyone has an Oswestry of zero. And so um, a 15-point change in your Oswestry is, is a pretty typical, typically agreed upon clinically important difference. In other words, something a patient really finds meaningful. And, and we saw 30 points of improvement wow. in the high-dose group in the MCID, twice twice the, the agreed upon MCID. And similar with the EQ5D, this is the European Quality of Life Five Dimension Survey that really looks at what your quality of life is like. Uh, and uh, an MCID and an EQ5D has to be uh, 0.08 to be meaningful. But we, we almost three times the improvement in the MCID in the, in the European Quality of Life Survey in these patients in the high-dose group. And again, a prompt response by 12 weeks and prompt and profound and then out to two years still sustained. So these are the aggregate results. So with a single shot, though, Jeff, like you're doing someone in your, you know, comes in, you've got your fluoroscope, you prep them, give them a shot. Mm -hmm. 12, 12 weeks later, profound improvement in pain, profound improvement in their level of disability, profound improvement in their quality of life. And again, it's sustained out to two years. Importantly, no, serious uh, TEAEs, treatment emergent adverse events. So we, we just didn't see any. And it's the same we've seen through our, uh, our animal studies. Uh, so kind of in keeping with uh, what at least our preclinical data seem to indicate safety-wise, our, 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 our human data so far demonstrates that the cell population is safe. And uh, the other interesting thing, remember we're, we're imaging these folks and the... Uh, we used an independent imaging core lab, uh, medical metrics out of Houston. So a, a core lab of uh, assessing radiologists who have nothing to do with the study mm -hmm. other than they're reading for us. And uh, they have an automated measure of disc volume. doesn't actually even involve human interaction. And, and I'll show you that data here in the next slide. So here's the disc volume data. So from baseline, the only group that had a sustained improvement in disc volume was the high dose group. And in fact, it was still increasing at two years. You know, we had seen the disc height improvement or disc volume improvement in the, in the animals. So it was, it was very uh, good to see it, of course, in the humans. And interestingly, in the, in the other groups, you know, the more sophisticated, the, 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 the more far along the, the phylogenetic spectrum the, the subject is the more injury you've got to do to a disc to induce that degenerated type state. But 
Jeff Brown, you probably know there is some data out there that that shows that even injecting a disc for discography mm -hmm. can hurt it. Mm -hmm. For sure. And so look look what happens, for example, in the sailing group in dark. Right. You know, their their disc volume is going down at two years. The, uh, the and the the carrier in red is going down. The, the low dose cells in green kind of make a late comeback to baseline at mm -hmm. two years, mm -hmm. but the high dose cell group consistent improvement in, in, in this volume. In fact, we were so uh, uh, interested in this phenomenon that we're going we're continuing to follow these patients out beyond two years, the high dose patients to see just you know, not only how they do clinically, but what's going on with this volume at three, four and five years. So more data to come. So the, the phase one, two trial demonstrated that high dose allogeneic disc progenitor cell therapy with discogenic cells was safe, well-tolerated, and it produced clinically meaningful and statistically significant improvements in back pain, uh, function, and quality of life by 12 weeks. And these, these changes were sustained out to two years following a single interdiscal dose. The disc volume increased significantly in the high-dose cell therapy at one and two years. And it coupled with our laboratory data where we're able to look at the histology, right? We haven't been able to look at histology in one of our human patients yet, needless to say. But based on what we've seen histologically in the animals and what we see with the volumetric data and clinical data in the, in the humans, we believe that the increased disc volume in the human trial is, is consistent with a regenerative effect of our cells. That is fantastic. I'll summarize it for a layperson. You tell me if I've got this right, but you've got a product that decreases pain, decreases inflammation, increases disc architecture. It's non-immunogenic, so you can't have a, a allergic, a, 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 like an organ rejection type process. Yes. There's no risk of tumor growth. You've got, and this isn't a claim, this is what we think, both clinically, radiographic, and in, at least in animals, histological evidence for efficacy for a problem that affects millions of people yearly. Yeah, we, we think we have something very interesting here, Jeff. I mean, and, sign and, me and, up. And very, and very useful <laughs> because as you know, there's just there's just not a good answer for these folks. There's not, but this may be it. It's it's a, a labor of love to help, you know, it's our it's our opportunity to literally help millions of people. Kevin, Kevin's already done that, being the father of minimally invasive spine fusion. I think his reach is, has 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 uh, uh, reached out to that many people, and uh, I think it, it, he's going to do it again together with us. We're we're going to do it together, uh, where we literally can help millions of people around the world, and that's really what you know. I think you know our, our, the essence of uh, of life is 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 to help others, especially when you see something uh, that that can be brought. Uh, to these patients, as as you know, Jeff Brown as well as anybody, both both all all three of the doctors. I mean, you know, y'all take a pledge early on, and uh, we're just trying to trying to maintain and grow that so that we can serve these patients and get them back to good health. That's fantastic. Thank you. I wanted to tell Kevin. Kevin, uh, you didn't know this, but in the late nineties, I actually worked with Valari. Really? Actually, cultured a lot of these. Did I, wow. I did cell culture for him in the late '90s, and um, 
Valari, Valari was awesome. He smoked a lot. He said oh, he wanted well, to you know, it, it, protect it, his brain. He well, protect it ultimately his brain. Did him in, you know? and, and, you know, he did. I mean, he did, the, he did some phenomenal work on adenocarcinoma as it metastasized to yeah. the brain. And 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 yeah. this was and this was the original process is that he was going to grow all these daughter cancer cells that he could do pan pharma testing yeah. against, and it's a similar yeah. culture system where we do this selection of cells from the disc tissue and then grow them out. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Well, that um, he was Russian, and I, I was perplexed that he didn't really drink. He said because, but he smoked. And uh, I remember they would do tumor resections and bring the tumors up to the to the hood. And I so I had a hand in developing your products, you know, guys. <laughs> yeah, we're going to close up. We've been on for two hours. But Kevin, thanks so much. You Rarely do you meet people with the ma the the match of humility and clinical competence and skill that you have, brother. You're just great to the world. And you, you, you never cease to amaze me how humble you are, despite your accomplishments. And I really thank you for your time. I hope that this broadcast will uh, bring you guys some the investors that you need to move forward and also expose the product that you're bringing to, to potential users of it and uh, and help a lot of people. So thank you for joining us. I'm Jeff Brown with your Merge Medical podcast uh, and with my host, Dr. Jeff Cole. Thank you for the executive team from Dysgenics for joining us today.